passage today comes from Jude, from the 5th through the 8th verses. Someone came up to me right before church and said they'd been praying for me and for us they had read ahead. And I want you to know that I have asked many people this past week to pray for us this morning. This is a challenging passage. And if you leave here and it hasn't been challenging, then you need to talk to me. Because it ought to challenge all of us. Jude, starting with the fifth verse, and we're going to study together through the eighth verse. Keep your Bibles open and bow your heads with me. Father, as we open your word, we know you had purpose in uttering these words to Jude and having them recorded for us throughout the ages. We're not the first ones to read these words and to be impacted through your Holy Spirit. But it's our turn, Lord, so I pray that you would now bless what we're about to do and help us to hear and help us to understand and help us to take it home with us and let it impact the way we live. For I ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the years, preachers hear some reoccurring statements. One of them that I've heard repeatedly from people who are attending church on a regular basis, they'll say to me, you know, Bill, I have a real problem with some of the doctrines. I believe in a loving God. And a loving God couldn't do some of the things that the Bible says he did. Well, at that point, I want to engage those folks and have a conversation with them about the full nature of God. And part of that nature is absolutely he is a loving, forgiving, graceful God. There's another part of his nature, other characteristics that are very much a part of him. And that is that he is a God who judges his children. He is a God of wrath. He is a God who allows consequences of sin to touch our lives. And there are lots of folks today in the Christian church who only want to focus on part of the nature of God. What our passage does today is it gets us to look at both the love and the judgment of God. And I got to thinking about it, and you know, it's very hard for you and for myself to relate to another person and to talk to them and relate to them in love and judgment at the same time. We do one or we do the other. We might be able to do both, but we don't seem to do them very well together. God has worked that out. He's synthesized that. He's He's got that to blend in such a beautiful way in his person. And this passage helps us understand that. Now, I want to ask you a question before I start. Is the God that you know the God revealed in the Scriptures? Lots of folks have generated and created their own God. And he's not the God of the Bible. And they don't want to hear that. And they don't want to be challenged by that. 
I want to introduce you to the God of our Bible by looking at two characteristics simultaneously, while there are many other characteristics. Look with me, if you would, at Jude, starting with the fifth verse, and follow along as I read. And listen carefully, my friends, for you know who's about to speak with you? God's about to speak. Now, I desire to remind you, though you know all things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bondage under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they were in the same way as those indulged in gross immoralities and went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Yet in the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. If you look very carefully at the first part of verse 5, you realize what Jude is doing. Jude is saying, I want to remind you of something, but it's something you already know about, something you've already heard, something it's already a part of your thinking. He says, but I want to go back over it again. Why does somebody want to do that? You know, we pride ourselves on being able to read something and comprehend what it says, don't we? Remember when we were growing up and they'd have us do reading exercises and then have us answer questions about what we read? That used to terrify me because I had a hard enough time reading it. And when they'd ask questions about it, my comprehension level was not very high. But there were lots of kids around me who were in the same boat, I found. But, you know, after you read something and after you hear it for a while, you do get to the point where you start understanding it. And those of us who, by God's grace, have been raised in the church have been hearing the things of Scripture all of our life. And we've comprehended a lot of them. So how come we don't live by them? I was standing out in front of my home and looking at a site I've seen before. It was 93 degrees the other day. Some of you remember that day. And I looked down and there were little worms, little earthworms, that were trying to get across the concrete drive. You ever seen that in your driveways or in your walkways? You would think that they would know when they crawl out of that soft, wet soil and touch down on that hot concrete, you would think they would know to turn around and get back to a better environment, wouldn't you? But they don't. You know what they do? They crawl a little further, they get stranded, and they die. We hear the Word of God, we comprehend the Word of God, And then our desires of the flesh cause us to put that aside 
and cause us to go places and do things that are terribly disappointing to God. And you know what happens? We start to dry up in here. And if we continually do that and we never repent of it, we die. That's what Jude is trying to remind us and his other readers all about. Here's how he does it. He says, let me remind you of three things. Sermons always have to have three points. Jude really is cooperating on this one. He says, let me remind you of three things. Let me remind you of what happened to the people who came out of Egypt. Do you remember what happened to them? They were in bondage. They called out to God. God heard them. God sent a man named Moses to come get them out of captivity. Moses came into Egypt, a place he was already familiar with. He confronted the Pharaoh of that mighty nation. God sent plague after plague after plague upon Pharaoh and his people in Egypt. Ultimately, he sent that final plague, which was the angel of death. The angel of death came and went from house to house, every home, every family, every animal, every herd, all across the nation. The people of Israel, God's children, as a demonstration of his love, had taken a sacrificial lamb and taken the blood of that lamb and put it on the lentil and on the doorpost of their home. And as the angel of death came to their home and saw the shed blood of the sacrificial lamb, the angel of death passed by their homes. How much more love can God demonstrate or show? You and I are going to have communion today. Our communion grows out of that angel of death experience. You and I deserve for the angel of death to come see us, folks. Isn't that a harsh statement? But it's the truth. There's nothing I can do or you can do to atone for the sins that have so disappointed our Heavenly Father. But out of grace, out of love for us, What he has done is he has sent his own son that he might die for us and pay a price that we can't pay and to fully satisfy the judgment of God. And when you and I come to the table today, we're going to be reminded of what Jesus has done. All of that is symbolic of the love of God for us and how he loved his people. You remember what happened then? God separated a sea for them. He brought them out of that Land into the promised land, or almost. He got them out into the desert. The sea closed in behind them to stop their enemies from hurting them. And they made their way to the north to Kadesh Barnea, to an oasis. And there, Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land, not to determine if they could go in and take it, God had already said, I'm going to give you that land, to go in and look at it to understand how they could take it, how to go about doing that. And you remember what happened. The spies came back and ten of them said, we can't take that land. Ultimately, God in his disappointment with his people, because they didn't believe, said to them, if you try now to go in, I'll oppose you. 
and for the next 40 years, under the judgment of God, they roamed in the wilderness. We know from Numbers in the very first chapter that there were 636 men over the age of 20. We also know that many of them had children and many of them had wives. And the estimates are that there were a million two or a million three folks roaming around in the desert for 40 years until they died. And the reason they died was they didn't believe. A God of love, a God of judgment. Understanding the grace that has been shown us is so very important. And not living a life like an unbeliever. Because if you live that unbelieving life for the rest of your life, one might conclude that you never were a believer. Second example that's given. It's about angels. Angels were created by God. An honored creation. He allowed them to be in his very presence. Imagine that. He allowed them to witness and to be a part of what was going on in the heavenly places. He allowed them to see the strategy that he had as he dealt with his creation. And don't you imagine they knew the beginning and the end of all of that? They, like Adam and Eve, lived in a very blessed place. There's a promise that's made to us. That promise is in the Revelation, 21st chapters, first seven verses. God says to us, when you die, I'm going to take you to heaven. And I'm going to be there, and you're going to be with me, and I'm going to be your God, and you're going to be my children. In an absolute kind of way. And he says, I'm going to abide with you. Meaning he's going to be right next door in the next tent. He's going to be right there to commune with and to fellowship with, just as he was with Adam and Eve. The same thing that the angels had experienced when they were in heaven with him. And then he says, I'm going to create a new heaven and a new earth. I'm going to fix my creation that has been so disrupted and corrupted. No more hurricanes. No more tornadoes. No more natural disasters. He said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it all right. And then he says something very personal. He said, I'm going to wipe away your tears. I'm going to take away your mourning and your sadness and your pain. And there will be no more death. The promise he's made to us the same promise that the angels were living out. A God of love, a God of mercy. The angels, Jude says, decided to abandon. They made a decision to abandon all that God had given them. And when they made that decision, they suffered the consequences. A God of love is also a God of justice. And the consequences were that for the rest of their days, they were captive 
to darkness. You ever seen somebody living in darkness? Spiritual darkness? Interesting thing about spiritual darkness, if you live in spiritual darkness and you just keep doing it day after day after day, it gets darker and darker. And after a while, there's no light at all. And that's what that captivity is all about. For the fallen angels, that captivity resulted in ultimately, when Jesus comes again, them being thrown into the pit of brimstone and fire. Never to see light, the light of God again. He's a God of love. He's also a God of justice. A God who judges his children. Jude gives us a third example. He talks to us about homosexuality. And I want to be quick to say that homosexuality is a terrible sin. And so is adultery. And so is being a drunkard. And all the other things that scripture describes to us. It's one of many sins that absolutely destroy people. And what he does is he says to us that there was a valley. Cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were in that valley. If you know anything about that valley before the sin took place, you'll remember that Abraham and Lot went to that valley. Lot chose to live in it, and the reason he did is the Jordan River flowed down from the north and flowed into that valley, and it was a plush, wonderful place to live. We know for a fact they were natural springs, and interestingly enough, those springs still exist today, that came off the bottom of that valley and just made a wonderful place to live. So cities sprang up, large cities. Sodom and Gomorrah were two of those, a number of other cities sprang up all around them, and they had a place that was a blessed place to live. A God of love who provides for us. He does that through our environment, and he does it in a multitude of other ways. But the people in that valley chose a sinful way of life. They broke fellowship with God by not living their lives the way he wanted them to live. And they engaged in homosexuality. And there are consequences to the sin of homosexuality, just like there are all other sins. You and I live in an age that's not a new age. What was going on in that valley is going on in our country today. And no matter what popular opinion is, no matter what political correctness says, folks, it's a sin. And there are consequences to that sin. The consequences for the people who lived in Sodom and Gomorrah is that God opened the heavens and allowed brimstone to fall into that beautiful valley. And it filled that valley with minerals that are so numerous that there is no life at all in the Dead Sea. Nothing lives there. 
And if you stand at the northernmost part of it, you can watch and the waters of the Jordan River, which are usually crystal clear, come flowing into what is now the Dead Sea. And you can see how within about five or six yards, those waters are engulfed by the waters of the Dead Sea. And instead of purifying the Dead Sea, they are consumed. The springs on the bottom of the Dead Sea still send clear water up. And the minerals in the Dead Sea suffocate that clear water. The consequence is really mind-boggling. We have 13 states that have now agreed to allow same-sex marriage in our country. We have another state in August. The Supreme Court will decide if they're going to do it or not. If all states allow same-sex marriage, it doesn't even begin to suggest it's right. Paul said to the Corinthians who had corrupted living, there are things that are legal that aren't good for you. And he said it to him twice. So whatever the law of our land is, whatever it may permit, doesn't mean it's good for us. When God said to the people in Sodom and Gomorrah to repent, it's because he loved them. And God loves the folks who are damaging themselves and their families today. And what he's doing in the scriptures is he's talking to us about how he wants us to live our lives so that you and I might enjoy him and all the benefits he's given us. And when we don't do that, when we turn our back on his teachings, he judges us. And rightly so. I want you to know something. God hasn't changed. And what he has said to the people in the Old Testament era, he has said in the New Testament era, and there is consistency in that teaching from one testament to the other. And it is still in place today, every dot, every tittle. God has not changed. And my friends, he is a God of love. But he is also a God of justice. If you look at the 8th verse, Jude says, and he refers to people as dreamers. You know, our mind keeps getting involved in sin. Have you noticed that? He said, you dreamers, you who sit around and think of things, and what he does in reverse order is he mentions the Egyptians, the angels, and the homosexuality. He says, you sit around and you think about these things, you fantasize these things, and they defile you. And what he's doing is he's giving a concluding statement by saying, wake up and understand what's happening to you. God has empowered us through his Holy Spirit not to think about some of the things that we allow ourselves to think about and not to do some of the things that we allow ourselves to do. And he's empowered us through his Holy Spirit to resist those things. Guess why? Because he loves us. And he has already demonstrated that love through his son, Jesus, our Savior. 
Folks, those are two of the characteristics of God. And they coexist. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. For he is God. And he's not about to change. So we're the ones that need to change. Let's pray together. Father, the writer of Ecclesiastes is so very accurate when he says there's nothing new under the sun. What has been is and shall be. And I know, Lord, you're not surprised by any of what you see in our culture today or other cultures around the world. And I know you're not thwarted. You're a God who's a sovereign God and mightily at work. I thank you, Lord, that you love us. I thank you that by grace we have a relationship with you. And I pray that we might cling to that relationship as thankful people. Father, as we come around the table today, I pray that you would set these elements aside for a holy use. And I pray that you'd minister to us right here, right now. And I ask it in Christ's name. Amen.